Yeah. It's a pretty exciting day on From the Hip because we're actually going to... This feels like the beginning of a sort of series of conversations with... Our first international guest. International. Oh, God, we're going global, girl. We're going global. Yeah. Dana Musil. Hi. Hi. Hey, good evening. Good morning. Hello. Dana, we have to do a series with you, we're thinking, because you've got a shitload of life journeys to share. There's a few interesting ones, yes. So, look, today we're going to begin with your time as a hostess in Japan, which was like late 80s, early 90s, which mm-hmm. I feel was at that lucrative height of the gaijin hostess game all the way from vancouver where you are now we've done a little bit of research we've watched tokyo girls which we're going to recommend to everyone else (laughs) (laughs) feature as that glistening red sequined woman (gasps) but yeah we thought we'd bring you the live version of that fodder from the hip so welcome 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 well thank you so much for having me it's quite an honor it's so nice to see you and speak to you after all these years because the last time i saw you was in japan was just after that time so we have this like direct visceral connection that way yeah it's amazing and we actually met through an improv class in osaka and then how the hell were you there even I think because I was so sad being married and I was so lonely and I just had such a need for a connection with other gaijin or other foreigners. And, you know, it, it probably came across my desk in the Kansai Time Out magazine. And, yeah. you know, I always had this dream that I would host the Academy Awards one day. So, <laughs> Donna, can I ask you, what encouraged you to go to Japan as a hostess in the first place? Honestly, I didn't even know what hostessing meant. Like, I actually assumed that hostessing meant, like, seating people at a restaurant and giving them menus. Do you know what I mean? Like, the host. And I actually, I had been having an affair with my boss. And I was was young. I was 19. I needed to get out of this affair. I didn't know how I was going to make enough money to ever get myself into journalism school. And a friend of mine had gone previously and she just would call me at all hours and she was drunk and she was like, you got to get your butt to Japan because there's all this money to be made and all you need to do is be a young girl, speak English, come on over, the world's your oyster. And, and that's pretty much all I knew about it. So was it sort of like a pack my hostess wardrobe and I'm off to Nihon? I didn't even have a hostess wardrobe. I think I had like a skirt and a blazer. Like, I mean, I landed... I was so hungover when I landed. I was throwing up the whole way on the airplane. Oh, my God. And you know what's really crazy is the the girl who invited me over, she came to the airport to pick me up with this, I hate to say it, but he was very short, like a very diminutive Japanese man with this long mustache and a part in his hair and like the necklace and the Rolex and and he was her, like, quote, air quote, boyfriendo. And I was like, what the hell is she thinking? Like, how could this guy be her boyfriend? And so he took my bags and he loaded us into his car. He had a driver. And that is the man who I ended up marrying. Whoa. Isn't that so crazy? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. From the hip. As far as a hostess goes, Mm. can you define that, Dana? Or, you know, you've talked about your expectations of what that might be, but what is a hostess? So back in the day, I mean, I think it's different now, perhaps. I don't even think that that job exists so much the way it used to. But back then, 
the hostess's job was to create illusion and it was to it was to foster a relationship with men that they would keep coming back into the bar. So basically, you had to to create this illusion that you were completely besotted and smitten with these men that would come in. I mean, they knew the rules of the game, obviously, but you had to create this illusion that that man that you were sitting with was your dream. It was everything that you ever wanted. Do you know what I mean? Like you had to, you had to compliment them. You had to pour their drinks. You had to light their cigarettes. You had to laugh at their jokes. You had to, you had to stroke their ego. You, you just, you just did everything in your power to make that man feel like he was the center of the universe or men, if it was a group of men. And you weren't really allowed to, depending on where you worked, you weren't really allowed to or encouraged to take that further. Like, so you weren't really supposed to have sex with them because that would be then the end of the illusion. And that is the other thing. When I was there in the beginning in the, in the, in the eighties, you had to be able to make conversation and decently intelligent conversation because a lot of these men, they were like the, the, the heads of, of corporations and the heads of companies. And they were like very esteemed men Mm. until they got too drunk so in the beginning you really needed to know what was happening you need to have some and some level of Japanese proficiency was helpful but were most of the men married yes yeah and did they have a good level of English then mostly not mostly not there were some who traveled internationally you know like international businessmen but I would say for the most part um, it was very difficult communicating in the be- in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you would resort to games like drinking games, napkin games, chopstick games. Like like it was almost like you were talking to a preschooler in a in a way. I was about to say it sort of sounds like it's almost childlike. But but that is so that is so much ingrained in Japanese culture. There is this level. Well, hello, Kitty. Well, no, that's <laughs> yeah. true. Don't you think, Donna? There is this. I mean, there is. It's really interesting this illusory conversation because yeah. Yeah. that exists so much, not just as geisha, but but even in contemporary Japanese society, where you know there's the laughter thing, or there's this whole front, whereas in fact behind the front is an incredibly racist, bigoted society. There's a word for that which escapes me right now, but there was a word for the meaning, like where. You know, you have the front and the back. Yeah. It's this duality Mm. that um, is very pervasive in that culture. So you went there not having any Japanese or did you have some Japanese? Oh, my gosh. I think I could say sushi. That was maybe like the end of my Japanese. I didn't know. I remember, you know, I was on the plane flying there. I was all alone. And and like I said, I was hungover. And I remember at one point I woke up on the plane and I thought, holy shit, like, what am I going to eat? Like, like, are they going to have fish and rice for breakfast? Like, am I going to have cereal? Am I going to eat granola? Do they have fruit? I was so ignorant to the culture. I was only 19, right? And, and, and I mean, really, my only exposure to Japanese people was like through sushi restaurants or maybe through the tourists that came through town. But I didn't have any understanding of the culture. All I knew is I had a six-month visa. I needed to make $10,000. Whatever came first, it was six months or $10,000, whichever came first, and I would get in and I would get out, and that was it. And did you only stay the six months? 
I ended up renewing my visa and I ended up that first time I stayed for a year. I mean, I had a break in between and like so many of us, we got there and then it was the money. It was the allure of like you get paid cash, you get paid per drink that you order. And there's a lot of Australian girls that I worked at and the Australian girls could drink. How do do you not just lose your shit? (laughs) To be honest. Oh, they were. I mean, you, you. There was plenty of nights where people were losing their shit, and I know girls or women who, one in particular that I'm thinking of, Australian, who in the end she completely lost her mind. Like we, she, we don't even know where she is. Like she disappeared. She just like disappeared. Her and her family had to just completely like be erased because she couldn't handle it. But there was, there was people who lost their minds. There was, um, there was so much chaos. Mm. There was so much chaos, but, and it was also like, it was almost like it was the wild west because there's no parents. Mm. There's nobody to report to. There was nobody looking at what time are you getting home? What time are you getting up? There was no rules really. All we had to do is roll into work at eight or 9 PM, whatever it was and drink as much as possible. And we were making like thousands of dollars a night, like thousands of dollars a night. It was also like if we, if, if we were done work, like some clubs close to 12, some close to two, like, so, so if I worked at a club that finished at 12, if I could, I would round up my customers. Say I had eight customers at a table and I would be like, Hey, let's keep drinking. Let's go to my friend's bar across the street. I would bring the whole group over to another bar and that bar would pay me per head of every person that I brought in. So I could like make another thousand, two thousand dollars just by bringing them over to another club. Do you think that was like a particular point in time? It, It was the apex of the bubble economy. And at that point, when I arrived, it had started in Tokyo, like most of the girls started in Tokyo and then Osaka, where we met. Um, they needed girls. So it kind of like filtered down into Osaka. And I have to say at the beginning, when I arrived, it was a lot of women who wanted to go travel the rest of the world. It was like a quick stop to make some money and keep going. Right. But then it didn't take long until the rest of the world, like found out about it, like, like anything good. Right. And then within a couple of years, you had you had a lot of professional girls coming in, like from, from Russia, from the Ukraine, from, and it, com- it completely changed. Because, mm. Donna, how did you reconcile that the fact that, you know, most of those women that were interviewed on that um, Tokyo Girls documentary, which we do recommend people look at, were all fairly independent, intelligent women. How did you reconcile that with this becoming this commodity? I had, a, I had an Israeli boyfriend when I was over there. You had to become a different person, right? Like you would have to like create a different persona. You have a different name. You always had a different name, which helps to create a different persona, right? My mantra was always like, keep your eye on the prize. Just keep your eye on the prize. Just keep your eye on the prize. And the prize was, for me, the prize was a million yen, which was a, a roughly $10,000, so I don't know how many times a month I had a birthday because like when you had a birthday, it was like you had to be young enough too, because there's this saying in Japan, um, once you hit 25 in Japan, they call you Christmas cakey. 
So because nobody wants to eat dry Christmas cake, right? So once, so if you think about like December 25th, it's sort of like, okay, it's Christmas day. So once you've passed Christmas day or 25, you're like a dry, worn out commodity. So you had to perpetually be under 25 years old, which most of us were. But if, for the people who were older, they, they would pretend they were younger, of course. And there was even, I don't know how many instances, but I knew in the first club I worked at, there was a mother-daughter duo there. Wow. So a very young mother. She wasn't even that young, but she was, I think. Post-Christmas from- cake mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd hope so. <laughs> well, there daughters there too. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. But it honestly, I mean, are, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. It, it really fucked with our heads. And yeah. there was a lot of casualties. Were you a nocturnal dweller pre? No. Okay, so even that, right, as far as just effect on your body, let alone obviously this intake of alcohol and smoke contained environment. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And in the beginning, like I was like, I, I was a real strong mountain biker. I worked out, I was always really fit. And I got there and I was like, I'm, I don't care how late I go to sleep. I'm going to get up in the mornings. I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to explore the city. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to make the most out of this time. I'm going to join the gym, you know, and then within like a month that just all went completely out the window and you just you can't. I mean, if, if you're not, if you come rolling home drunk every night at three, four, five o'clock in the morning, there's no maintaining any semblance of, of health. The consumption of alcohol couldn't be a pretense either, could it? It was pretty hard to pretend not to drink. There'd be like orchids, there'd be flowers, there'd be plants around. Like I, you, you'd, you'd spill a drink. There, there was ways for me to sort of like get rid of the drink, mm. but it was difficult because they're watching you and they're complying, right? You're yeah. like, they want to see you drink together and you would get paid. We would get paid at the height of it, a hundred dollars per shot of tequila, say. So it's like, Oh, have a shot with me. And we would do games where like the customer would hold the lemon in his mouth and we put the, the salt on his neck. So it became this whole like, you know, kind of sexy thing. And we chuck the tequila and there's a hundred dollars. Great. Stick it in your bra. Another hundred dollars. Stick it in your bra. Oh and God, it's so much money. So oh it's prostitution God. without the sex in a way, isn't it? Yeah, you're totally a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And then the sex may eventuate or may not. Exactly. So you were good at it. You'd say you were good at it. There was different levels. Uh, I was good, but I wasn't great. So there was, we called them hostesses with the mostest. So there was the hostesses with the mostest, which I never became, but those were the girls who just could, they could laugh at any joke, no matter how perverse or how degrading or how humiliating Uh, they could make conversation. They, they just had that knack, right? Then there was me who I was like, I was decent. I was, they liked the way I looked. I was not bad at it. And then there was the girls who came over with an idea and they didn't last. They'd last days, weeks, and they just like. 
So they, in fact, came with expectation then, in a sense. The girls who came with expectations were the ones who mostly studied Japanese at university or they had some interest in Japan and they came over because they wanted to to immerse themselves in the culture. And once they had a look behind the scenes of like what hostessing was about and what these men were about, they just like, they were out. Did you ever go out with any of your customers? So, okay, so here's the thing. You had to, depending on what club you worked in, there's a thing called a dohan, and a dohan is a dinner date with your customer Yeah, that results in bringing the customer back into the club. And that was mandatory. So you, it might be one a week, it might be two a week, it might be three a week. You did get paid for it. But if you didn't fulfill your quota of dohans, you would get docked money. So you had to collect business cards, right? You had to write on them, you know, like guy with the missing left arm or guy, whatever it was. <laughs> I hope that wasn't true. And then, no, no, it was true. And then, hey, it's my birthday. Do you want to go for dinner? And then you would meet them at the Zeniku Sheraton. This was pre-cell phones. So the way you would meet is you just agree to meet at the Sheraton. That was sort of like the meeting place. And, and you'd walk into the lobby and it was just ringed with hostesses standing there. And then the customers would come and then the little bellboy would come with a bell. Ding, 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 ding. And they'd like call your name and then there's your customer. And then off you went upstairs to have teppanyaki or whatever. And then you'd bring them into the club. And if they decided not to come into the club for whatever reason, that would really suck because you spent all that time really on nothing. You know, and you don't want to go for dinner with them. I, I mean, yeah, sometimes you did if you, if you went to a really nice restaurant. But it was a mandatory thing that we had to, yes, we had to go out with them. And the mm. clubs were run by mamas? They were mama, son? Yeah, they were like madams. You yeah. know, they were almost like brothel madams. They were business women and they were not to be messed with. Mm. Mm. So you did your six months. Did you get to your 10,000 in the six months? I got to my 10,000 in my six months. Mm. And then I I had met this Israeli. There was a lot of Israelis over there. Mm. And they're just like, they're the most wonderful people and what, whatever. You know, ended up in love and went traveling, Thailand, Israel, all the rest of it. And then we, we met back in Japan to do like another stint. That happened to a lot of girls is you just get sucked in because where else in the world can you go to make that kind of money? Like after being able to like just sit on your ass and drink and eat some dried squid dipped in mayonnaise and, and soy sauce, how are you going to go home and work for minimum wage? Like it's almost impossible, right? A lot of us ended up going back again and again and again. Hey, Divine, thank you so much. It's great. We'd so love, beautiful. So you're keen to do more? Yeah, I would love to. Okay, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to Zoom you because we've got fucking years to catch up yes, on. Yes, you do. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Bye, beautiful. Okay. Thank you so right. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the Hip is a weekly podcast featuring Kath and Mish for and on behalf of From the Hip Enterprises, recorded in the studios of From the Hip. You can subscribe and find more episodes of From the Hip at fromthehip.live. On Instagram at fromthehip underscore podcast, search for From the Hip on Facebook and download wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. Until next time, stay fine, stay fab, stay hip.